Welcome to the Binge Your Bum Podcast with Ellen Sherman and Gillian Gordon. Well, hello and welcome to Binge Your Bum. I'm Gillian Gordon. And I'm Ellen Sherman and welcome to our 26th episode. So today we've got Lessons in Chemistry, which is eight hours on Apple TV. And we've got 30 Coins, which is now two seasons, isn't it? On on, uh, HBO Max. And we also have a special guest today. Want to introduce uh, the guest, Gillian? I know her very well. Her name is Mirren Gordon-Crozier, and she's my daughter. She's a very talented costume designer, and we're incredibly proud of her. And she's she worked on lessons in chemistry. She did the costumes, which are a rave. Next, lessons in chemistry on Apple Plus. This enjoyable, stylish adaptation of the best-selling book stars Brie Larson as a chemistry genius battling late 1950s sexism while she cooks up a storm. Imagine Mad Men set in academia and a TV studio instead of Madison Avenue, and you will have a fair idea of the detail and texture that has gone into this eight-part serialization of Bonnie Garmus's novel. Lessons in in Chemistry follows a young chemist uh, who's also a cook named Elizabeth Zott. And she's fighting the patriarchy, trying to make a name for herself in the scientific community. And I guess it's the late 1950s in, in, yeah. in Los Angeles. And she's got some pioneering research. And God knows I can't tell you what it is. But having been pushed out of completing her PhD, she's forced to work at a, as a lowly lab tech, fetching coffee, cleaning test tubes for these really mediocre male counterparts who don't know anything. And she's the one who kind of fills in the gaps for them. She then falls for the Nobel Prize-nominated Dr. Calvin Evans, who's played by Lewis Pullman, fabulous actor, and he ignites a chain of events that propel her to stardom as the host of a TV cooking show. Lewis Pullman is perfect casting as this wonderful chemist um, and her lab partner, and eventually, of course, her lover. He's lanky and attractive and oh, so appealing. I think his running look, which is sort of just a pair of kind of white sweatpants and a white sweater have become a kind of chic thing. It's become like a major fashion trend. Really? Who knew? (laughs) (laughs) Zot's setbacks take her on a decade-long detour from her true dream of chemistry research to being an unexpected TV star. Nonetheless, as Sticks to her guns, calls out sex at practices when she sees them, and challenging challenging the domineering white guys whose Y chromosomes have given them unearned power over her. My favorite line from Dreamy Calvin is, I don't understand. Why would anyone discriminate based on something as intellectually non-determinative as gender? Well, exactly. It doesn't roll trippingly off the tongue. That's <laughs> but a great line. Brilliant though he may be, Calvin's, you know, cis hat white maleness uh, really didn't see what women were going through. I guess he was had his head in the books. Anyway, their tender courtship is really a delight to watch. She never compromises her innate feminism by yielding to the power and sometimes overbearing brain of Calvin Evans. What I thought was was really 
fascinating was that this is pre-feminism. This this takes place. It starts to, and it's, so it's a very gentle kind of feminism. She just is somebody who's determined and knows her own worth, which was unusual back in the, in that day. And she, you know, on her cooking show, she kind of inspires other women to know their worth. Yeah. Although, you know, they do slightly hit you over the head with it. I thought, I mean, oh yeah. it turns out Elizabeth is a great cook. So, you know, in spite of, you know, the way that she's treated in the chemistry lab, uh, she goes home and she turns her suburban kitchen into a culinary lab. And she's a new mother and a breadwinner. So she's forced to get a job because guess what? Science won't give her a job. And when an opportunity knocks in the form of a kind of TV producer who happens to be the father of one of her daughter's friends, she agrees to become this daytime TV chef, not entirely understanding, I don't think, what she was getting herself into. <laughs> Look, she's not the light, fluffy, girly show that the station wanted. And the executive producers, played wonderfully by Rain Wilson, pressures Elizabeth to endorse horrible sponsors, you know, bags of cleaners. And yeah. and then he rails against her penchant for wearing pants, you know, but somehow Elizabeth Zott perseveres and the show becomes both scientific, feminist and a hit. And as you said, you know, the, the audience just loves it. And it couldn't be more of a shock to the to the executive producer who can't understand that you know that women actually have taste and that they want to hear this. They want to be supported. There's one scene where a woman in the audience stands up and talks about medicine and and Elizabeth urges her to maybe go to medical school, which is something, you know, the the whole audience is in shock. They the idea of a woman actually going to medical school while also being a mother and a wife is something that is really revolutionary. As an actress, I think Brie Larson's is really likable. I mean, you know, Captain Marvel, maybe that's not my kind of movie, but I loved Room. And her character, you know, in this is slightly on the spectrum, isn't it? You know, but she's, she's also sympathetic. I mean, and look, the tragedy that befalls her, you know, is somewhat melodramatic, let's face it. But the creator, Lee Eisenberg, who, I mean, the creator of the, of the TV show, crafts a really delicious kind of aspirational fairy tale, including a fascinating universe. I mean, it was beautifully uh, done. The sets are incredible. I might add, the costumes are stunning. And when you said the thing about her being on the spectrum, which is something that, you know, we don't like to throw around, except that was for me the only uh, discordant note a bit. Yes, I'm sure there are people that walk and talk like this character does, except I found it a little cartoonish her kind of affect. Yeah, I mean, I do think that the show is a sort of one foot off the ground. Yeah, that's a good way. You know, but I think it's hard it's it's hard is true. I mean, there there is one change to the book which for those of you who love the book, I I hope you'll be okay with. The character of Harriet who was the neighbor is, is turned into a very attractive, very bright young black lawyer. And this sort of reimagination of Harriet kind of tackles the civil rights movement that brought all the kind of racial tensions to boil that was kind of going on at the moment. And also they're living in uh, a predominantly black neighborhood. Of course, they're trying to build up a highway. It's a bit like Chinatown, isn't it? They're trying to build a highway. And Elizabeth, of course, is completely oblivious because she's so obsessed with her own problems. At the end of the day, after I was finished watching all the episodes, which I, I did thoroughly enjoy, 
I just found that it felt like it was stuck stuck on there. You know what I mean? I felt that the character, the neighbor being black was absolutely appropriate. I love the idea that this very quirky chemist, her, you know, uh, Calvin chose to live in this area because he would make that kind of decision. That seemed very appropriate. I just felt the whole thing about the highway and the, you know, destroying the neighborhood to do the highway. I felt that that was just like, oh, let's throw in something about, you know, you know, civil rights and gentrification. It just didn't seem to fit with lessons in chemistry. I, I also wanted, wanted to make a shout out to this extraordinary child, Alice Halsley, who Wasn't played she good? Uh, the, her daughter, Mad, who is so intelligent and extraordinary advanced vocabulary. And it, she could have been obnoxious and precocious, yes. But, yes. you know, and, and I and, and I found that a huge delight. Plus, there's a wonderful character of a dog, which in the book, the dog talks, actually. Um, in, in the series, uh, he doesn't. Although I, mu- I must say, I don't know whether period appropriate you would be having because that was a doodle mix and uh, there were oh, was it? <laughs> and having being the owner of a doodle mix of several doodle mixes over the years i don't think they had doodle mixes back in the 50s but that's a small point and the dog was probably considered a mutt then right yeah exactly that would be a mutt i totally agree with you about the little girl when we met her i thought oh i am going to hate this child and then, as it turns out, she is totally spot on for the for the product of these two people. She seems like she belongs to Elizabeth Zott. And she even, even though she never met him, seems to be the product of her father. I think what I loved was the way that the character Elizabeth Zott empowers her audience and and is so respectful and intelligent um, when they have their questions. And I think I don't think there was ever a TV show like that on when when, uh, we were growing our mothers were sipping you know martinis and watching cooking shows so what do we think it was beautifully done i mean no just no expense or time spared it just was so elegantly lit it was so beautifully acted so of course i think it should be a binge and i agree 100 percent. a definite binge Much has been made of the costume design for Lessons in Chemistry, costumes which reveal so much about each character and their journey through the story. And responsible for this amazing work is costume designer Mirren Gordon Crozier, whose credits also include Where the Crawdads Sing, Burial, Glass Castle, and many others. Welcome, Mirren, my darling first daughter. (laughs) (laughs) So, Mirren, when you read the book, what was conjured up for you? I mean, what did, did you start seeing it? When I read the book, I yeah definitely started to see Elizabeth Salt's character pretty much m- like mapped out in my mind where she would start as a character and where she would end. A lot of images came to my mind: Grace Kelly, yeah. uh, Ingrid Bergman, Audrey Hepmer, but all of the styles that were kind of off duty for them, not um, necessarily on screen persona. Mm-hmm. Part of the delight, I mean, I just wanted to eat up those costumes, costumes, those dresses. They were just like scrumptious. Was oh. there a, a thought to color palette or you just went with what you liked? seemed to me that the, that the uh, costumes got sort of bolder and, and more, um, uh, not colorful, but just bolder as, yeah. as the movie went along. Yeah, definitely. In the beginning, I used, she really, you know, wanted to blend in and not stand out. So I used a lot of dustier colors, so more desaturated. And then... 
Uh, Elizabeth Stott's character tends to wear a lot of green, obviously has a lot of symbolism, but also she goes through a lot of changes. And so I tried to like sprinkle in different shades of green. I have to ask about the running outfit that <laughs> which everyone went crazy for. I mean, like people were wanting to imitate it. I mean, you could have probably done, you could probably do a line of running clothes. <laughs> there is, yeah, there is a lot of pre-made 50 style running stuff they're just really expensive really yeah the sweat because they're made of like real cotton whereas nothing is made of cotton 100 cotton. (laughs) well it's such an unusual choice to have him be a runner in that day and age when that wasn't the thing you did and her be on crew it was interesting to do the research on the crew clothes too i mean you mentioned brie larson being like grace kelly i i can imagine it's it's not easy to do costumes for the perfect body because she does seem to have the perfect body with the tiny little... What you, I was going to say, she's got like a 16-inch waist, it seems. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But what about for the kind of less perfect bar- bodies, inquiring minds? <laughs> no. no, I mean, we had we had some bigger sizes, and I think that silhouette is very good for... I mean, everybody comes in at the waist. We put We put everybody in pointed bra and a girdle and all that stuff. I think the wearing girdle oftentimes like helps actors get into the character as well, the way they walk and move their body and, you know, they're wearing heels and their waist is cinched. So they're sort of sucking in and would of course affect performance. So with that, was that your choice or the director's choice or the, or the actor's choices? It was the costume. Yeah. Costume department choice. Yeah. Wow, very interesting. And also the little girl. I mean, that was another thing I was, wanted to say was I I love the way she was dressed. I mean, she was also an extraordinary actress, yeah. but also the way she was dressed. I loved it. I mean, it was so real, too. Yeah, we really, like, pulled a lot of stuff also from the 40s, you know, because they weren't didn't have a lot of money in the beginning and until Elizabeth Sott started the TV shows. So the girls going to her school were wearing petticoats and perfect saddle shoes and socks and things. Oh, like <laughs> she didn't really have that. As much. So, yeah, that was her contrast. But what TV series are you watching? I'm watching The Crown. I think the costumes are amazing in The Crown throughout the whole thing. Even now, they really, like, get it. Any other series that you love that we should recommend? Recommend to people? Um, I, I really liked the last season of Marvelous Maisel, but I like a good period. And I'm looking for more period TV shows myself. So. Oh, well, wait. <laughs> We have a, we can see have a list. Sure. We sure do. Okay, amazing. What are you working on? I'm doing a TV, a movie called Shell. What kind of movie is it? It's like a body horror sort of. Oh. Uh, Max Minghella is directing it and Elizabeth Moss and Kate Hudson are the lead. What period is it? Like it's 80s, but set in the future. So kind of anything goes a little bit. Well, thank you. We all can. Thank you very much. Coming up, 30 Coins on HBO or Max. Now, this series is a kind of adventurous fairy tale horror story and has elements of both Indiana Jones, X-Files, jammed into a Da Vinci Code quest. Behind the series is Alex de la Iglesia Mendoza, a Spanish film director, screenwriter, producer, and former comic book artist whose films have been noted for combining the grotesque and adventure, which is very much the stuff of many comic books. 
If you want a reference to this series and the feel of it, think Mexican director Guillermo del Toro and his films like Hellboy and Pan's Labyrinth, because both directors share this fascination with a lot of really gross things with monsters and insects and the underworld, and notably for both of them, the dark side of Catholicism, and in particular, the powers that be at the Vatican. The series starts off in Geneva, where a gunman shoots up a bank while appearing to shrug off bullets. Huh, so that's a little odd. His objective is cash, but also a single old coin from a safety deposit box. Waiting for him outside, a suspicious priest takes the cash, then snatches from the gunman the coin that was inexplicably keeping this gunman alive after being shot. And so instantly he dies, and the priest, it seems, could care less, which, by the way, is not the first evil priest we're going to encounter. Meanwhile, in Pedraza, Spain, a cow appears to give birth to a human baby. Then during an exercise. Oh, that is, that, that is worth watching for that alone. Oh, it was so gross. All right. <laughs> then during an exorcism, a, po- a possessed young girl flies upwards and crashes through the roof of a, of a house into the nighttime sky. And that is just the start of this village's paranormal phenomena. Trying to understand it all is the burly bearded Father Vergara an exorcist and ex-convict who thinks that the weird happenings are linked to another old coin that he possesses, which it turns out is one of the 30 pieces of silver paid to Judas Iscariot for betraying Jesus. Individually, these coins will turn out to have supernatural powers, but the person who gathers them all together will control the power to bring about an apocalypse and change the world to their liking. To stop any one person from gathering these coins, Father Vergara enlists the help of Elena, the town veterinarian, and handsome Paco, the town's mayor, who's in love with Elena, but married to a very manipulative woman. What they will discover is a conspiracy involving the Vatican itself and threatens to again participate this apocalypse. We now learn the plot to gather the coins together is being engineered not only by the cabal of evil Vatican cardinals, but with a consortium of billionaires, masterminded by Barbro, played by Paul Giamatti. I mean, I just, I have to say, I couldn't even watch the whole thing. I mean, it's beautifully, it's in a wonderful location around Segovia and it all looks fantastic and it's beautifully done. And we love Miguel Angel Silvestre as Paco. He's an actor we liked in Sky Rojo, although I didn't like him so much in this. What's curious about this and what I think is interesting is that I find it very clever in how they how they manipulated the horror. The Giamatti character who possessed the, all the coins at one point and winds up manipulating people on a little toy chessboard he has was a very clever plot point. And what some of you will and won't appreciate are the vivid elements of horror, which I know both Gillian, Gillian more so than I, I think, doesn't like. And particularly graphic are the lurid nightmarish landscapes of some kind of hell into which Father Vercara and even Elena are consigned for a time. And this underworld is where I really thought of Guillermo del Toro's visuals. But as terrifying as this is, this awful world is so beautifully, I think, as you just mentioned, art-directed and shot, Mm. that you're kind of fascinated by it. It's more than a little nutty, since I think he was trying to throw into this everything but the kitchen sink. There's adventure. He tries to throw in romance, which I don't think works. And really sort of over-the-top, kind of Roman Catholic, phantasmagoric, visuals and sort of viscera, which I guess is the grotesque, isn't it? I mean, how else would you describe it? The problem is that 
you know, you can't have it every which way. Where he succeeded was in the grotesquery, whether you can watch it or not is another thing, because I had to turn away at some point. But he tries to interweave in this a romance between Paco and Elena. I felt it was just sort of stuck in there. I kind of got it, it, it certainly felt that way. I think if 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 it's a genre that you like, it, you know, it might be it might be something that you watch with the family if you want to terrorize oh. them. <laughs> You know, you know, you watch this. You watch this with your fourteen-year-old teenage son. Yeah, exactly. It is Hellboy. It is kind of Hellboy, violence-tinged graphic novel feel to it. And the second season, especially, although they introduced some interesting characters like this kind of YouTube um, influencer person, there are way at the end of the day way too many characters in this, Absolutely. In this thing, and way too many side plots that are supposed to be contributing to the main plot of not getting these 30 coins together so the end of the world can happen but it's like there's an insane asylum and there's villagers that are like giving psychotic drugs and I, although i really rather like the character of father vergara who oh. is- exorcist and the ex- <laughs> you know he's got a past and you see him boxing with his tattoos Lots of great elements to it. I watched a few episodes. I flipped through it. It's just not my cup of tea. But if if you're into the genre, go for it. As far as I'm concerned, it's a bomb. It's kind of like watching a train wreck a little bit. I'm fascinated to see where they're going to take this. I have a feeling it's conceivable that they've written themselves into a hole. So I'm interested to see if there is a third season, what they do. And I'm going to say it's it's a binge. We're happy to wish you another round of holiday greetings and best wishes for the new year. Be- happy 24. Oh, God, can you believe it? Whoa. Whoa. What are you, okay, what are your resolutions going to be? Oh, my resolution. More TV. <laughs> no, not not watch more TV. I don't know. Get out and try to make a a, a difference in this upcoming election somehow, in some way, tiny shape or form. That's my resolution. Or, or we're leaving the country, right? <laughs> in our next episode, which is episode twenty-seven, we're going to review Little Bird a Canadian drama that has as its backdrop the illegal adoptions of Indigenous children by well-meaning white Canadian couples. Then we've also got Shetland, a compelling police drama about a feisty but disillusioned policewoman who reluctantly returns to her former Shetland home to help investigate a local murder. And Annika with uh, The Divine Nicola Walker, which is a series set in Scotland, actually, funnily enough, from the same area that I was from. It's very interesting. It's a really great series, and she breaks the fourth wall, and I love that. So here we go. Again, like in River, she broke the fourth wall. Yeah, it's fascinating. Anyway, she's a wonderful actress, and we're looking forward to episode 27. And in the meantime, have a wonderful, restful holiday. Happy, happy, happy to everybody. 